I'm borrowing a story this morning. We've been um, announcing the presence of the kingdom of God through our stories in recent days. And lest we think that the kingdom of God is only working here or only present here, I have the testimony of a woman from Romania to read to you today. This is Virginia speaking. Like most people, I was born with a hunger for truth and freedom. Unfortunately, I was born in communist Romania under the brutal totalitarian regime of Nicolae Ceausescu. Ceausescu, Romania's, his Romania was a land of lies where simply questioning a government directive could lead to imprisonment, physical torture, and in some cases, death. Needless to say, we lived in a constant state of anxiety and mistrust. Anyone could arbitrarily denounce a neighbor, classmate, or family member for making anti-government statements. The government even had spies planted in churches. The best way to avoid trouble was to remain silent, question nothing, and try to blend in. For years, I watched my parents and relatives play the part of good citizens while privately whispering their contempt for the government. The more fear battered those around me into silence, the more obsessed I became with finding the truth. After graduation, I went to law school and became an attorney. But my job, assigned by the government, consisted of little more than rubber stamping newly created communist rules and regulations. It was demoralizing. One evening, a client came in to discuss some paperwork related to a property settlement. We had been meeting for months now, and frankly, I was exhausted. But this particular client never seemed to get discouraged. He always smiled, and he had a sense of contentment unlike anything I had ever seen. It was as though he were somehow oblivious to all of the misery that surrounded him. He radiated, he radiated joy and peace, and for some reason, it troubled me. Without thinking, I confessed, I wish I had what you have in your life. I wish I had your sense of peace and happiness. Do you go to church, he asked. Yes, I replied, on Christmas and Easter, why? Would you like to come with me to my church this Sunday? My first instinct was to decline. After all, the, gov the communist government was notoriously anti-church. Under Ceausescu's rule, Christians were frequently arrested, beaten, and imprisoned. Church buildings were bulldozed, their land confiscated to make room for the president's palace. Anyone who questioned his anti-God stance was either thrown in jail or disappeared. For all I knew, this could be a trick to test my loyalty. I paused briefly to consider my next move. Then I saw once again that look of peace and contentment. I wanted that, so much so that I decided it was worth the risk. The next Sunday I visited his church. As soon as a choir finished the opening song, the pastor read John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. I could not believe what I heard. Someone was claiming to be the truth. As the pastor continued to describe the truth of Jesus Christ, I felt as though the verses he shared were written specifically for me. Looking across the aisle, I saw my client. He smiled, nodded, and gently patted his Bible as if to say, now do you understand? I did. Without realizing it, I was beaming back at him. For the first time in my life, everything made sense. I had spent years searching for the truth, but I had been looking in the wrong places. Law school, the government, the justice system. I suddenly realized that truth was something that came not from law books, but from God himself, the creator of the universe, my creator, the source of all life, peace, and happiness. Barely able to contain my excitement, I accepted the pastor's invitation to trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. From that moment on, I would dedicate my life to pursuing and speaking the truth, no matter the cost. Shortly after I was baptized, I began defending fellow Christians facing imprisonment for transporting Bibles across the Romanian border, sharing their faith, or worshiping privately in their homes. This quickly made me a target. Many days I awoke to find my tires slashed. Clients and friends, even my children, were threatened. My daughters and I were held under house arrest for most of a month. I was kidnapped, bullied, pushed into moving traffic, and beaten by the secret police. For their own protection, friends and co-workers began keeping their distance. My faith was tested daily. My greatest test, however, was yet to come. Late at night, after a long day in court, my legal assistant peeked into my doorway. A big man in the waiting room says he wants to discuss a case. She shrugged. That's all he will tell me. I was taken aback at how enormous he was. As he sat down in front of my desk, his eyes seemed to bore a hole straight through me and a sneer formed at the corner of his mouth. Slowly, he pulled back his coat, reached into his shoulder holster, and withdrew a gun. You have failed to heed the warnings you've been given, he said, aiming at me. I've come here to finish the matter once and for all. He flexed his fingers, and I heard a distinctive click. I'm here to kill you. My hands shook. Fight or flight instincts pinged in my brain. My chin trembled. An image flashed through my mind. My assistant arriving in the morning and finding my lifeless body on the office floor. I was alone with my killer, and yet I was not. I began silent, fervent prayers, recalling God's promises. His spirit breathed peace into my panicked heart. Then I sensed his message to me, share the gospel. I considered the man before me. Behind those hate-filled eyes, was a creation of God. He had an immortal soul, and he needed to know about the love God had shown in Jesus Christ. At once emboldened, I met my killer's eyes. Have you ever asked yourself 
why do I exist or why am I here or what is the meaning of my life? I once asked myself those questions. My voice stayed calm and did not waver. He slid his gun back into the holster. I leaned forward. You are here because God put you here and he has put you to a test. Will you abide in God or in the will of a man? Your, bro your boss, the president, who requires you to worship him. God has given you free will to choose. His eyes soften. My heart thumped even faster and my confidence rose. The truth is that we have all been corrupted and gone away from God. He nodded. We are all sinners and our sin has determined our future. Hebrews 9.27 says, People are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. His mouth fell slightly open and his hands relaxed. But the good news is that God has prepared a way out for every one of us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. As I continued to talk with him, he appeared smaller and more peaceful. Finally, he brought his hand to his forehead and said, you are right. The people who sent me here are crazy. I do need Christ. He promised, I will come to your church as a secret brother in Christ. I will worship your powerful God. And with that, my killer walked away saved, a brother in Christ. He went on to enroll in seminary, and we have even kept in touch. He, like me, had found the truth, and neither of us will be afraid to speak it ever again. This is the announcement that the kingdom of God is active at hand. I'm being challenged this week. Uh, it's a mental wrestling, if you understand that kind of a term. It seems to me that I can't get a lot of things I want to accomplish, organized, and put into motion. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. It feels a little bit like that picture from the old Fred Flintstone cartoons where his feet are moving, but the car isn't going anywhere. Um, as I've been thinking about it, some of these thoughts sort of percolated into my mind. I came back from sabbatical convinced that the key to our progress as a church was a clearer picture of our goals as a church and a renewed sense of passion to meet those goals. And there's been a particular vision I've been trying to articulate. I've been trying to say that we're called to live as citizens of the kingdom of God so that the entire world can see the goodness and graciousness of our God. Because I believe that when we live as Christians in the truest sense, that others will be attracted to the Jesus we love and glorify, and they will be drawn into his kingdom and to him. I think that's our mission, to love the people God loves and assist them as they make their way 
toward the kingdom. I'm afraid that the people of God, myself included, are easily distracted from this goal. And in order to reorient toward our God-given tasks, I have felt that we've needed to do two basic things. The first idea is that we need a course adjustment that points us to Jesus' mission and helps us understand and recognize the way that our society is pulling us away from living in ways that will bring life to us and to others in the kingdom. You have to recognize what, what threats there are to our life in the kingdom so that we can resist them through prayer and community. The second thing I believe that we need is spiritual friends who will encourage us and keep us moving in the right direction. I recognize that I am not an especially skilled leader or organizer, but I do feel like I'm waging a battle trying to get small groups organized. And I suspect that our enemy knows how useful those things can be. So he is fighting to keep us isolated, to keep us discouraged without resources. But we have lots of opportunities to engage in small groups, Sunday school classes, celebrate recovery, small group ministries that meet in homes. Lots of opportunities for small group participation. Please understand you don't need my blessing or the approval of the church to pull a few friends together to meet on a regular basis to encourage each other to pray, pray for one another and follow Christ together. If you do this and you tell us about it, we'll support you and help you all we can, but please don't wait on us to figure it all out to get the ball rolling, however diligent we might be in this process. There's, there's a second piece that I'm wrestling with in all of this. I guess this is the second battle I feel like I'm in. I'm feeling like that in my attempt to try to identify the way that society is trying to shape us and drag us away from God, in my attempts to warn us about this, um, so that we can be spiritually sensitive in the battle that's ours, I have this shaking fear of this potential to create a new legalism. A legalism that might sound something like this. If I avoid all the difficulties that have been identified, if I create a personal worship time, then I will please God and he will love me. Here's what I've been reminded of this week. God already loves you. Nothing you do will increase his love for you. He's already demonstrated the majesty of his love for you. So, so you are loved already, and it's not about what you do. It's about the fact that you are the apple of his eye, that he created you to be that. 
And when I remember that, and when I'm thinking clearly, I get a better picture of all the good things that happen here, day after day, and week after week. You know this because you see it all around you. There are truly wonderful people at this church who are working day by day, faithfully expressing the life of Christ. You are your Father's delight. Once in a while, I get a little peek behind the curtain and see some of what is being done in secret and the way people are acting for, in the best interests of others. And I see the kindness they embrace and the good that they are doing. And that is so refreshing and encouraging to me. And I guess one thing I want to say to you as a perhaps a corrective to make sure that this series stays on target is this. It may very well be, and I know for some of you it's absolutely true, that you are exactly on course and simply need to keep on doing what you're doing. It may be that. And if that's true, I would encourage you to hear the confirmation of the Spirit and keep doing exactly what you're doing. And as I think that, I recognize probably every Sunday that we gather, there's a mix of people. Some of you are amazingly faithful. Some of you are somewhat faithful. Some of you are not very faithful to the values of the kingdom. And some of you, as kindly as I can say it, are clueless about the values of the kingdom. And perhaps, I guess what's most surprising to me is that when I'm completely candid with myself, I am all of these at different times. Sometimes completely faithless, sometimes somewhat faithful, and sometimes clueless. Sometimes I need a word of encouragement. Sometimes I need a word of instruction. Sometimes I need a kick in the pants. And I guess I would say that, that this sermon is an interlude in the process of unpacking the kind of training we need to be faithful in the kingdom of God. I know this will come as a shock to some of you. Don't faint. You're about to get a three-point sermon. And you're thinking, like, when was the last time we heard one of those? Three points, straight up. First of all, you are loved. Second, obedience is the currency of the kingdom of God. Thirdly, obedience is better than sacrifice, but it may require sacrifice. This is Matthew 26, 47 and following. This is the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would invite you to stand for the reading. Matthew 26, 47 and following. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, 
Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Lord Jesus, add your blessing to the reading of your word, we ask. Amen. You may be seated. Some folks believe that Judas betrayed Jesus to force his hand. Judas wanted a violent rebellion where the Jewish nation was once again in control and the power of Rome was overthrown. He thought by handing Jesus over to the Jews that Jesus would have to defend himself and this would cause Jesus to act to use his power. Jesus knew about the power of Jesus. He had seen the miracles. He knew that Jesus was stronger than even death itself. And so he proposed, he hoped, that by setting things in motion, this revolution that he instigated would propel Jesus into power and Judas along with him. This was not Jesus' plan or mission. So Judas just caused a great deal of pain and panic by taking things into his own hands. The mission of Jesus was, from first to last, to demonstrate the love of God for us. He can't do that by killing some of us off. So Judas is confused, and his work ends up making him the black sheep for all eternity. But Peter isn't any better informed. He is cautioned to stay alert and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane so that he can be victorious in the time of temptation. Jesus wants Peter to overcome, but rather than pray, Peter sleeps. This phrase has bothered me through the week. What do we do rather than pray. Jesus tells Peter to pray, to watch and pray, and I think Jesus is a little frustrated that Peter can't do it. I know prayer isn't convenient. We try to fit it into our days. We want to pray. We just don't always do it. Prayer requires me to identify the places where I am in need and submit those to Jesus. I just wonder what would happen if rather than trying to fit 
prayer into our lives. We organized our lives around praying. And so it was the first thing that on the schedule and everything else fit around it. If you have trouble staying focused in prayer, pray with friends. This is a primary function of any small group or accountability relationship. This is a great way to pray. Peter's lack of prayer in this passage allows him to do exactly the opposite of what Jesus wants, all the while thinking that he's being loyal and helpful. This is what prayerlessness can do to us. Peter thinks he's being loyal, pulls out the sword, slices off the servant's ear, and Jesus says to Peter, who thinks he's being loyal, put your sword away, Peter. Don't attack the people I love and have come to die for. Do you see what can happen as a result of prayerlessness? We're working for God, or we think we are, or we've come up with our own ideas how we ought to serve God or, or please him. And unless we're in tune with him and understand what he really wants, our fervor for God becomes exactly the opposite of what the true mission of Christ in the world is. Scripture says that once Jesus heals the servant's ear, the disciples all abandon him. Jesus doesn't need soldiers to fight our society so that the church can win. He still has legions of angels at his command to execute his judgment anytime he wishes. He doesn't need us to devise our plans to make our country into what we want it to be. Jesus wants disciples who will walk humbly in love and actually obey him when he speaks, which is, which is different than us working to figure out what we're willing to do to either impress Jesus or demonstrate that we love him or do what he thinks need, do what we think needs doing in order to honor him it may it may take great sacrifice for us to do this to listen long enough to know the voice of the spirit to confirm the voice of the spirit with others because there are times, candidly, when we can't understand the mind of God or his instructions to us. And we need others to pray with us to confirm the direction he seems to be sending us in. Walking in love takes enormous strength. Walking in love requires us to keep the sword in its sheath and avoid cutting off ears. Walking in love 
requires us to see the people who are right in front of us. Do you see the people and the needs that are right in front of you? You know, if we keep ourselves busy enough, and I think if we're candid, we really like being able to tell people when they ask us how we're doing, we like to be able to say, well, I'm very busy. Uh, you know, being busy is like the epitome of usefulness, which then anchors my identity and makes me feel good about myself. If I'm busy, I must be accomplishing something worthwhile. Or, and I don't know that that's true. I think sometimes we just make ourselves busy to distract us from the things we know we're supposed to do but don't want to do. Hey, could you help me with the dishes? No, I'm busy right now. You know, you know, we find these ways to be busy so we can be selective about our responses. We don't have to notice the needs right in front of us if we already have something on our calendar or we're already just, just too busy. We're living these busy, sacrificial lives, lives to Christ without understanding that busyness can't replace obedience. So no matter how busy I think I am at work in the kingdom, if I'm not doing the thing that Christ is inspiring me to do right now, it's, well, obedience is better than sacrifice, but it might take a sacrifice in order to be obedient and do what he's calling us to do. Walking in love requires us to see the people and the needs who are right in front of us. Walking in love requires us to listen for the voice of the Spirit. I understand that the Spirit is not restricted in terms of his opportunities to speak to you. He doesn't only speak to you while you're praying. He could be speaking to you while you're watching the Red Sox. He could be speaking to you while you are raking the front yard. He could be speaking to you while you're washing the windows. The Spirit's not limited in his ability to speak to you. However, there's something significant about setting aside time in quiet in order to listen carefully for what the Spirit's saying. There's something about being attuned to the Spirit as frequently as possible and in regular ways so that I can hear what the Spirit is saying. Because my ability to walk in love and to do what really is His will as opposed to what I think His will is or what, if He knew better, He would do because I know that's the best way to go, to, to really walk in love requires me to listen for the voice of the Spirit. This is what 2 John 1, 6 says. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love, that you put the sword away, that you refuse to slice ears, that rather than fighting for Christ, you allow him to change the world through you. 
by walking in love and obedience to his command. I guess what I want you to hear today is first of all, that you are deeply loved by God. Be encouraged by that. The second is, because you are loved, you can obey him with confidence. It's safe, incidentally fruitful and productive, to obey him. And third, I would admonish you advise you, encourage you to make sure that what you are doing amounts to obedience to his leading rather than coming up with your own plans to work for him. Listen for the voice of the Spirit and do all that he has to say. I'd like you to join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you love us. We are grateful for the way you work among us. Lord, we know by experience that you use us when we take the time to listen to you and that you express your love through us again and again. And Lord, I am so grateful for my friends here today who continually express your love to others. Encourage them this day. Draw them close again and remind us all of how deeply we are loved by you. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we haven't been obedient to everything you've called us to. By your grace, help us to be obedient because we want to honor you and we want to let others around us know that we're not the only ones who are loved by him but all of his creation is loved by him. Make us fruitful in the harvest field. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. May the love of Christ for you continue to shape and transform you to the glory of God now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.